Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And I am nearly five weeks out from the exam. It feels kind of stressful. I, I lay in bed last night um, just kind of vaguely worried, not, not about anything in particular, but just because I had had a good day yesterday, I hadn't been stressed, I hadn't read anything because it was my day off, and I, I just felt guilty. I felt guilty because I thought this event, this thing is coming in five weeks, and I should be thinking every moment of every single day. I should be struggling until that exam comes. And of course that's not true, of course that's not a good way to study, but that's how it feels sometimes, that the vice is pressing down and I have to perform. And one of the ways that I practice, besides doing this podcast, besides reading, besides taking all these notes, is when I'm biking or showering or just walking around, I imagine myself in that room and I imagine my professors looking at me and asking me hard questions. These are the big questions that take a ton of thought to answer, that it's really easy to have your answer just be a foot-in-your-mouth moment where you start talking and then you suddenly realize, oh my god, I am not making any sense, or I sound like somebody from the 1950s, or I have just insulted my professor's entire life work. And these are the questions that often are asked on the exam. One legendary opening salvo uh, of somebody's exam was they sat down and everybody said hello, and then their first examiner got up and, and he said, so, what is capitalism? Which is a huge question. It's a huge question. Um, and I should be expecting that kind of question from my examiners. What is modernity? And then I give an answer, and then they spend 20 minutes poking at that answer, looking for weaknesses looking for contradictions, trying to press me on how I might take this answer further. And so when I'm in the shower, when I'm walking around, I ask these questions to myself. And today I was, uh, you know, walking back home from the gym and I thought, God, how would I answer that question? What is capitalism? And my first thought was, oh, well, what I would do is I would melt into a pool on the floor and uh, that would be the end of me and, you know, at least my orals would be done. But then I thought one interesting way that you might be able to answer the question of what is capitalism is by looking at the different theories of what capitalism is. And I think that when we do that, we notice two things about them. First is that each thinker is trying to explain a particular situation. Often they don't say this very clearly. Often you have to read between the lines to see what it is they're actually worried about when they talk about capitalism. The other thing that we should look at is what kind of historical moment they think is the ideal typical moment of capitalism. And so we see two things the hammer and the nail, the thing that we're trying to explain and the time period or the event or the process or the company that we think explains it. And so in this episode, I'm going to go through some of the big thinkers and uh, answer those two questions about their ideas of capitalism and, of course, touch a little bit on what they think capitalism actually is. 
this episode might be a little bit historiographical, a little bit theoretical. I don't know. It might be boring. Who knows? Feel free to zone out and uh, listen to your political gab fest or whatever it is the kids these days are into. So the great grandfather of theories of capitalism is, of course, Marx and Engels. I don't think it's possible to make your way through school these days without having to buy from Amazon the big red Marx and Engels reader and uh, read at least some of it. Dip your toes into some of what they're saying. So Marx and Engels were writing in the middle of the 19th century, and they were trying to explain this new thing, factory production. Factory production, as we know, started really uh, kicking into high gear in the 1820s and 30s in England. And then slowly it spread uh, across Europe, and then even slower across the rest of the world, but only in a couple key industries, mostly cotton and iron production, uh, and in some small other areas. But Marx and Engels did not know that factory production would only, at this moment, be confined to cotton and some consumer goods. For them, they saw this new kind of factory organization as something that was inevitably going to take over the world. And this was exciting. This new kind of factory organization brought money, it brought middle-class freedom and learning and houses and books and universities and all those great things that we love. It brought gigantic meals and prosperity. And it also brought cheap goods, cheap cottons. And it was exciting, new ways of doing things. It opened up this productive frontier, this dream of having infinite wealth, of being able to have machines make everything. And on the other hand, it was hideous. It created untold suffering. It filled the world with smoke and smog, and it was staffed by underpaid women and children who were undernourished and sick, and they got cotton dust in their throats, and they were poor, and all of this for some cheap cotton clothing? All of this so that a bourgeois middle-class person can teach his daughter how to play piano? This was the problem. Factory industrial capitalism and its spread. To explain it, Marx and Engels looked at history as a series of stages, from prehistory to early empires to feudalism to modernity. This was not unusual at the time. Stadial theories of history and these particular four stages were really the common way in which world history was organized. It was the way that people looked at the development of societies. What distinguished Marx and Engels, however, is how the stages moved. What brought somebody from, say, a uh, traditional to a imperial uh, mode of, of, of living? For them, history moved because of the struggle between different groups, these groups being defined in how they worked and how they consumed. If you are a Marxist, the jargon for this is uh, dialectical materialism, and these social groups are defined by their relationship to the modes of production. So for them, the transition that is involved in factory capitalism is a transition in how things are made and things are owned. And so 
this material base, this structural change, will inevitably change society, bringing us on to a fifth stage of life. What that is, who knows? A second influential view of capitalism is Max Weber. Weber was trying to explain what was happening in Germany a little bit later than what Marx and Engels were. He had read Marx and Engels and was often responding to their work. And this thing called capitalism had changed. It was no longer these small cotton factories run by middle-class industrialists that Weber was curious about. No, in Germany, there were two new kinds of organizations that Weber needed to explain. The first was the German state. Germany before like 1870 wasn't a country. It was a bunch of different, you know, petty municipalities and cities and kingdoms and, you know, electorates that were all kind of loosely jumbled together sometimes because they all spoke German. Um, the biggest one was Prussia, which is uh, now in what is East Germany and a lot of what is Poland. And they were like militaristic and kind of gross. And Prussian efficiency uh, was really the stamp on the first German state. The first German state was efficient, it was highly bureaucratic, it was powerful, and it was a little bit worrisome because people who got wrapped up in it didn't act like people, they acted like bureaucrats. The second big move is that starting in the late 19th century, German capitalism starts to take on a different organizational form than that of uh, British capitalism of the earlier 19th century. Namely, German capitalism gets big. The German steel and chemical industries benefit greatly from economies of scale and scope that we talked about a couple episodes ago, and so they got really, really huge. They were not run by Schumpeterian entrepreneurs. They were not run even by Marx and Engels-esque middle-class, you know, factory magnates. They were owned by capitalists, but they were run by managers, by experts, and they were run through a bureaucratic system of power. It is this that Weber wanted to explain. And to explain it, he looked to a kind of different problem, one that is peculiar to Germany uh, because of Germany's long and kind of fractious history. How to account for the different outcomes of Catholics and Protestants? Germany was unlike England, and it was unlike the Netherlands. It did not have an established church. Uh, people in different communities were Catholic or Protestant, and Weber thought that it was very clear that the Catholics were poor and the Protestants were rich, that the Catholics did not have capitalism and the Protestants did. And so, to explain this new world of organizations, Weber looked to ideology, to religion. For him, capitalism started off as an idea, as a change in mentality. People got it through Puritan religious ideas that did this peculiar thing to how they viewed their own behavior. First, it gave them license to accumulate material goods, which made it okay to be a capitalist. But second, and even more worryingly, it put everybody's salvation in doubt, which led people who thought that they were pure, who led people who thought that they were saved, to constantly be needing to work to prove that they were saved. And from this, we get a lot of the peculiar uh, cultural trappings of capitalism. 
One example of this is the constant time discipline that we associate with capitalism. And we can find the roots of that in Puritan and Methodist and other pietistic uh, religious sects insistence that time is a gift from God and that we need to use it, you know, with, to the best of our abilities. If we squander it in drink or idleness or sex or not doing anything that's not, you know, saving souls, then we're wasting our God-given time. And because God only saves the elect, if you want to be one of the elect, you better not be a time waster. It's this time discipline that allows the Puritan to collect things. And it's this collection of things that allows them to give a boost to capitalism. The big change is a change in ideology. Another key theorist of capitalism is the historian Fernand Burdell. And Burdell is probably the guy who made me want to be a historian. Uh, his books, The Mediterranean and Civilization and Capitalism, are these massive tomes just filled with erudition. And reading them after college, I wanted to not even write a book like he wrote a book. I couldn't write those books. I wanted to be able to understand his books. I was so enraptured with him. He has such a great style, this wandering and fluid prose. For him, one of the big things to explain is how Europe came to be Europe, and then how it ceded its position to the United States. We can understand what's at stake for him in this quest for understanding European identity if we think about when he wrote. The first edition of the Mediterranean was published in 1949, and he wrote the first draft of it from memory when he was imprisoned in a German prisoner of war camp. For him, the big moments are the shift from what we might think of as the Renaissance and Reformation period of European history to what we might think of as the Industrial Revolution and French Revolution periods. For him to explain how Europe became Europe and then America became Europe, I guess, he looks at global capitalism, this global exchange of high-valued things and money. For him, the big story about global capitalism is not necessarily class conflict. Instead, it is the shift of the weight of global capitalism from world city to world city. These world cities are kind of in the driver's seat of capitalism. They're where everything goes to get sold and bought, and they get enormous power. And the story of Europe can be told in the changes of these world cities, which go basically from uh, Italy up through the Low Countries and then over to England and the Atlantic. The cities go Venice, Genoa, Antwerp, Amsterdam, and then finally London. The change is from city-states that look towards the Mediterranean and the trade with the Middle East to nations that look towards the Atlantic and trade towards North America, Africa, and the world. Another more recent theory of what capitalism is uh, comes to us from uh, two British scholars called Kane and Hopkins, who we've discussed in a past episode. For them, they're trying to explain the rise and fall narrative of British history. How Britain, against all odds, seems to clamber its way 
off of being this kind of indistinguished archipelago off the coast of Eurasia to being the center of everything, to creating industrial capitalism, to taking over the world. And then, just as uh, oddly, how this powerful formation falls apart and collapses in the 20th century. The big problem for them then is the twin processes of deindustrialization and decolonialism, which is happening in Britain in the second half of the 20th century. And to understand how that is happening and why, they look at what I've called the giant pool of money, the group of financiers and politicians who are really kind of running the show of everything. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making a Historian. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Check us out on social media. Thank you to Jonathan Lear for our great music and Duncan Barton for our image. I will speak to you guys tomorrow.